0: Well, in 2004, Benjamin Franklin Gates, famously portrayed by Nicolas Cage in the movie National Treasure, went on a treasure hunt looking for a massive buried treasure with clues that was given to him by his late grandfather. The treasure was stashed somewhere in the United States of America, and there were clues over time that he would find that would lead him to what he would hope and believe to be a tremendous treasure chest that was ciphered and scattered all throughout the country. However, this epic tale takes a twist when Ben and his treasure hunting partner, Ian, uh, realize that they are going for the same thing yet separate from each other in their pursuit. And Ian thinks that he has found the next clue leading him to need to steal the Declaration of Independence, causing Ben to then need to steal the Declaration of Independence first, and a battle ensues, causing a war between the two where Ben himself has to do the unthinkable, take this national treasure, ironically, away from all of its people. Their goal was to find hidden treasure, glory from the past. Now, I've been waiting for like two years to use National Treasure as an intro in a sermon, and this Wednesday, it just started clicking. But I wonder if you have ever gone on a treasure hunt. Surely, you as a child or even you as an adult, surely you have gone on a treasure hunt. In New Mexico, when Brooke and I lived there, there was a very famous wealthy person who told everyone broadly that he had hidden treasure somewhere in the Sandias, and people would take vacations or spend their retirement trying to find millions of dollars that were stashed away in the Sandia mountains. Brooke herself wanted me to propose to her through a treasure hunt which I was not going to do. That would take too much time and effort. I just wanted to marry her, and she wanted to make it difficult. But all of us have thought about treasure hunts. And for centuries, people have truly been going on treasure hunts, not not in jest, not as kids, but as grown, mentally strong adults. Christopher Columbus wrote King Ferdinand from the shores of Venezuela thinking that he had found the hidden treasure, except... Except Christopher Columbus, when he was in Venezuela, thought that he only not found treasure, but the Garden of Eden itself. Ah, now we understand the context of this introduction. Alexander the Great went on an epic trail where he thought he found, too, the Garden of Eden. William F. Warren, the very first president of Boston University, not brain dead, wrote an epic book and scientific book called Paradise Found, a playoff of Paradise Lost where he changed Eden studies. Think of it, Eden studies. What do you want to grow up and do? You might want to be a banker. You might want to be an archeologist. You can actually study Eden and where it is. He said that Eden was actually in the North Pole. There's a priest in Argentina a couple hundred years ago who was killed for saying that Eden was in Brazil. People for two millennia have been looking for Eden and you and I may not look for Eden at all. It's like we've lost the wonder of what once was. People risked their lives to find Eden. People had their lives taken in order to find Eden because they had a pursuit of the beauty and flawlessness of once what used to exist, the glory of the garden. I wonder if your past week uh, shows itself in one of two ways. Maybe your past week was, was a good week, filled with laughs and joy and family and friends. Maybe your last week was miserable, where you saw friends fighting, family disagreeing, work feeling useless, people maybe even slowly passing away. And in that, you might echo the preacher of Ecclesiastes, where he very cynically says that life, it's very hard, and in many ways, it just feels pretty worthless. The author of Genesis is writing to us, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago. Think of yourself in the context of what the writer of Genesis is doing. He's writing, Moses is writing to a war-torn, enslaved, wandering group of worshipers saying, you're being mocked, but remember the true maker who is on your side. And in our text today, it's, it's like he's writing to this very same exhausted group of Israelites, basically saying, it, you're right, it is, it is truly awful out there. What you are going through is miserable, but remember Remember how good it once was and have hope because the garden in the beginning will one day come back. In the coming chapters, God's word by Moses' hand will tell us exactly why our lives and the world is the way it is. Moses will explain for chapters of why everything seems to be crumbling around us. But before he does that, the way he sets up why our world and our lives seem to be in tremendous turmoil, he sets this up by first saying that in the beginning there was a garden where there was life, there was magnificence, there was beauty and honor and glory and holiness. Now, if you're new with us this morning, for the last couple of weeks, God's word has shown us the, if you think of it, the expanse of his awesomeness. It's like Moses built a telescope for all of God's people, and he's, he's pointing our faces to the sky and all around and saying, look at that, and then look at that, and, and then when you're done, look at that. But here in this context, it's like he puts the telescope away and grabs a microscope and zooms in on something majestic for us. The the literature here acts like a microscope saying, take careful attention at the intimacy and at the beauty and at the glory of God's special, particular, unique creation. A good man in a restful garden. Friends, don't lose the wonder of God's special creation. A lot of us, I think, when we read the beginning of the Bible, we, we know that we've got a lot ahead, so we just keep on reading and we don't stop and wonder at, we just think, oh, that's pretty cool, planets, dinosaurs, big oceans, oh, look, a special person, a, a beautiful vegetable garden, and then we just move on, but don't lose the wonder of this special place with a special person. If you're using an outline provided for you on the bulletin, I've got two major points, with 3 subpoints, which is a nice way for me to tell you I only have two points, but I actually have like six and a half. But So I want us to understand what, we're really, what God is really zooming us in on. The first thing that God is zooming us in on is a special person. Our text begins with a unique separating phrase in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens... Now, last week, if you'll remember, if you're paying attention, a, a helpful way to understand how Moses, the author of Genesis, is having us understand exactly what he's writing to us. Uh, you might be reading along, and, and, and if your Bible is like mine, it all of a sudden has indentions, and it, and it busts out in a poem. That's intentional. It's not, it's not the editors just symbolizing or uh, significant significantly separating these two things. All of a sudden, we saw Moses causing us to zoom in on the person that was made in the image of God in verse 27 of chapter 1. And then again, he has this indention for us, this this poem for us. It's another poetic division in the narrative. Now, I, I think it would be helpful for you to understand this is Moses' way, the phrase, these are the generations, to actually give us chapters in the book of Galatians. And this happens 10 times. It'll next happen in chapter 5. So in in some ways, chapter 2 going all the way up to chapter 5 is like one unique chapter. In this chapter, Moses is technically and linguistically breaking our attention to understand why things are the way they are. That's kind of what chapter 1, if if chapter 1 of Genesis was like a prelude to the rest, Chapter 1 here, starting in chapter 2, I know that's kind of confusing, I made it confusing for you, I'm so sorry, but chapter 1 really is all about why things are the way they are, and he's starting with how glorious things once were. So this should capture our attention, where our attention is called to understand why things are the way way it is, to a special place first, within creation called Eden. In Eden we watch. God form a special person where he then will fill the earth with his presence. Remember how in chapter 1, God does three major things in the first three days of creation. He fills what was once chaos, or he forms, and then he fills with days 4, 5, and 6. And he's repeating this pattern even within day 6 where he calls our attention to this special man. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 here. I'll read it for you. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So one thing before we go into some of these subpoints that I want to bring your attention to, I want you to notice today, is that man is very much like you. What you're going to read here and see here is that man, Adam, here in this midst, is very much like you, but also he is very much not like you. And that'll help kind of set the agenda for our own lives of what God is doing here. So let me, let me describe how, how Adam is very much like us and not like us. He, he has a unique design. He was created from the dust, and he has a dependence about him. So if you're using that line, point one, sub-point A. He has a unique design. God formed man. And the language here of God forming man is incredibly stunning. There's a shift here that ought to capture our attention, though. Now, if I were to ask you, and I would ask you to say out loud, I would say, what was Genesis 1 about? Hopefully, in a Christian church, you would say, Genesis 1 is about God. God. Now, I might also ask you, okay, what then is Genesis 2 about? And you say, well, this is about a special man and a special place. Surely it's about Adam. No, Genesis 2 is still about God. In fact, the entire Bible is not about this man, and it's not about you, but the entire Bible is to you, but it is about God. And the way we know this is because look in particular at verse 4 of our text, something Changes here. It's like a camera angle shifts. He's zooming in, but he's also emphasizing something unique and particular. Look at verse four there of the text, there at the bottom of that phrase, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And then look at verse five, there in the midst, the use of Lord God. In verse seven, Lord God. In verse eight, Lord God. On and on and on throughout this chapter, there is a shift from using just the title God to now using the title Lord God. The the title of the main character here for us, we should know that it has expanded. It is not just God we're talking about, Elohim. It is now Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. This isn't a description, this is a title. And just as an aside, the Bible is pointing this out to us, wanting to deepen our attention to him. And in chapter 2, it's as if Moses is wanting to change our attention to who God more fully is. In an abrupt and striking way, he goes from Elohim to a sovereign God, to a God who spoke and created and formed, but in this case, Lord God, he is now a personal God. Every time Yahweh is used throughout the Old Testament, it is describing the, the particular and gracious uh, Essence of God's love towards his particular people. So it's not like an abstract or far-away God, but as a particular and familial God. God is a name. He is a person. God is a personal God who is known and is meant to be known. And later on, it will be Yahweh who speaks to Moses from the bush. It will be Yahweh who parts the sea and drags his people through it. It'll be Yahweh who rode atop a thunderstorm and rested upon a mountain where he tells his people how they can live. That The shift here, and you may think this is small, but the shift here is to draw our attention to now the God of everything, who is sovereign over all, is now operating in title form, in a very personal way. Now, you might think, cool language lesson, who cares? I need you to know that he specifically and specially made Adam. It wasn't an accident. You know, this wasn't like a form of abstract art where things just kind of kept unfolding and, man, I got a little carried away with making the earth and, oh, I made a man, and I'll just make him in our own image. But rather, he specifically and specially made Adam. This is the same God who specifically and, friend, specially made you. In our chaotic world, what Moses is trying to draw our attention to, you need to know that you are no accident in God's eyes. You may think, like the author cynically in the book of Ecclesiastes, that everything is out of control, but at the beginning, it is clear that everything was very much in control, and God had people in mind where he placed them in the garden. You were made by Yahweh God, and in the same way, you were made to know him. The Lord God forms this man. And again, the language is precise. God is portrayed here as a craftsman, as a potter. And at the end of the Old Testament, he will later be described as a potter who was making his people for his own glory. God is the potter, and this now is his clay. So, friends, just as an aside, you are not here in this room, in this place, at random. Mankind is made. Mankind is formed and fashioned unlike anything or anyone else. He has made the process. He knows the product. And the scripture says, before anything began, take a step back and understand this. Remember the majesty and the power of Genesis 1. Before that, the scriptures will say, before the foundation of the world was laid, he knew you. Breathtaking. But man was also not made with a particular design, but he was made from dust. And friend, you can't make anything from dust. I'm sure some of you have tried. You cannot make anything of substantial circumstance by dust. But verse 7 shows that God formed man from dust from the ground. And if you want to know why you are the way that you are, pay attention to Genesis and its unfolding explanations. Genesis 1, mankind was called an image bearer. Mankind was made in the image of God. Now in chapter 2, the image bearer is from the dust. Literally, it reads Adam from Adama. Adama, the Hebrew word from ground, so man from ground is how he was made. Dust from the ground. And here's what I'm saying. You and I have a very uh, complicated nature. And yes, I'm saying that, that all of you, me included, are complicated people. Right? We are complicated in our nature. We are exalted over all the beasts of the field, over all the mountaintops and the, and the valleys of the ocean. We, we, are, we are made and can build towers, we can write poetry. We can fly rockets into space with us inside of them. And yet we're made from the dust. You see the tension there of, of God's glorious creation of man who, is, who was made to do remarkable things. Yet keep in mind the humility that we all have is that we were, though made in the image of God, we were not God. We're just dust. We're glorious, but we're also formed. So Adam's greatness, and he will be seen as great early on, Adam's greatness didn't come from within Adam. And your greatness doesn't come from within you. His greatness was a derivative of God's work. And our greatness, any sense of our greatness comes from God. And it's meant to be displayed in submission to God's own rule. Now, what's amazing here is the littleness of man and yet the glory of man. And they have their place in the kingdom of God. Man was made to own. We saw that last week. Man was made to fill with his work. Man was made to multiply with procreation so that we could have so many glimmering reflectors of God's glory. But all of this in submission to God's command. (laughs) And it's when man assumes his own command that things fall apart. It's when man steps outside on his own that he becomes banished. It's when man builds glory for himself, you think of the Tower of Babel, that he is then humbled and scattered. So great are we, but so dangerous can we be. But in the garden, mankind was made and formed from dust, where life was breathed into him where he came alive. So here we see the dependence of man, where he was made from the dust and then Breath was put in him. We see thirdly here under the special person, we see the dependence of man. God formed man from the dust of the ground and then breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man then came alive. (laughs) Again, it is so incredible here. God breathed into him. One English pastor a hundred years ago famously said, breathed here, the word breathed, yippa is warmly, quote, warmly personal. It is, quote, likened to a close kiss. So here we see this breath that's going into man. It is, it is from God charitably as self-giving. It's the Lord God who made the heavens and the earth who is now breathing of his own life into man. And there's more going on than here than man having now a pulse. There's more going on here that, it's more going on than you would imagine God just turning on a machine. The image here, receives, the image bearer here, receives now the communicable attributes of God, the things that, that we can do that are, that are like God. So you think of thought, you think of morality, you think of reason, you think of a soul. What makes you different than a tree? What makes you different than a balcony? What makes you different than a lizard crawling on the ground? You, you have God's communicable attributes breathed into you and a soul here comes alive. God breathed into man's nostrils, and he became a living creature. So this is Adam's nature. This is your nature, our nature today. And this should help us understand. You've heard me say it for a couple of weeks, and this is not new to you, but but if you imagine so much of what you and I can understand about God, about His creation, about how his creation has gone awry later on in the scriptures or in our lives today, we can take those and root them back into how things were very good in the beginning. Last week we talked about issues like sexuality. Let's take them and root them back into the very beginning and try to understand how God originally wanted things to be unfolded. In the same way, you today, your specialness, your uniqueness, also your dependence, how is that rooted? It's in God breathing life into you. And the ramifications of this are in a multitude. Husbands, look at your wives. Maybe not right now. And wonder aloud to God's glory that he placed his image bearer before you in marriage. I think about that. He breathed life into her and says, you, my son, care for her. Or parents, look at your kids. Or kids, look at your parents and grandparents and notice that those people are the very image bearers of God who have the same very breath that was breathed into Adam. If you gave me a coin or a piece of paper that was valued at a billion dollars, <laughs> I would look after it so carefully and so tirelessly because it holds the image of a billion dollars, of true wealth, I would imagine. Dads, when your wife brings home a baby from the hospital, God has given you an image of God with God's life breathed into it. And kids, when your dad grows old and can no longer take care of his body, that is a body which, until he dies, contains the very breath of God. You see how this understanding of, of what God is doing, just breathing into Adam, forms for us as Christians an ethic of how we live, how we care for one another, how we look after one another, how we look towards one another. Friend, do you see that in this doctrine, it's called the doctrine of man, even within the garden shapes the way that you and I view your life. You are totally not your own, but you are dependent on God. You were nothing until he breathed life into you. And it also shapes the way that you view other image bearers who are not only dependent on him, but equally and intimately, they too are made in God's image. Man didn't become man by survival of the fittest. <laughs> he, was, he was just kind of a body on the ground. You could see it that way. He didn't make himself godlike by his own free will or his own ability to choose. It's like he was not on the ground saying... If you're done with creation, I would now like your breath. But rather we see this amazing generosity of God where he not only makes them in his image, but breathes this very intimate life into them. And it shapes the way we ought to view things. Man was designed by God. He was made from the dust by God. And sustaining life was breathed into him by God. And this not only carries it forward in how we view it, others, but also it carries itself forward in how we are continually dependent on God in our own soul's salvation. It was God who at your regeneration breathed an understanding of his righteousness into you. It was God who caused you to, to evaluate yourself and say, I need someone to save me. It was, like, it was like a breath or a gust of his glory and his righteousness that was summoning you to himself. In the same way, you might look around at the world around you and go, the most important thing I can imagine for my kids, for my parents, for my friends, the most important thing is, God, will you please save them? It's as if we ought to say, God, will you breathe new life into their hearts? Man is dependent on God from the very beginning, and we are, man, we are so dependent on him throughout all of our days. So God is having our hearts zoom in on this very special person, but it's not just aimless. He He also causes us to zoom in secondly now on a very special place. Start looking at verse 8 through 17, and I'll read it in its entirety. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden and in the east, and there He put man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every living tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, and it was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there was gold. And the gold that was of the land was good. Bdellium and Onyx, stone, are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it and eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I want to hover over this magnificent portrayal and description of this First, space that we find man in. But I, I want to highlight one specific action that's taken here, and this will be the, the first subpoint of the second section. This, this isn't a description of fully of the garden, this part, but though it takes place in the garden, which is why I have, the, the, have it on the second point of the outline. But I want you to look at verse 15 in particular. I just read it, but verse 15, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, in English, your copy of the Bible. May have the same words put, both in verse 8 and in verse 15. Mine does. It has put there in verse 8, and then it has put there in verse 15. But in Hebrew, these are actually different words. These are different words that can be translated rightly as put, but they have a different emphasis by them. One word in verse 8, it it means put like you might put a, a plate or a cup or a coffee mug back in a cabinet. You put it there for safekeeping and to use it later on. But in verse 15, this word, it could be best translated as rested. Here God rested man in the garden. Remember the seventh day of creation where God created all these things, almost took a step back and then rested and continually rests today? Here on the sixth day of creation, we see this zoomed in picture of how God delicately cares for his special person now in this special place. He he rested Adam in the garden. In zooming in, in the garden, we read that God made man and then rested him in the garden. Now, now, how does that work? Keep in mind, hold on, hold on with me here, Adam will later start working, right? So he rested man in the garden, and then he immediately told man, or he commanded man, or it says that he explained to man, that he then told him to work and keep the garden. Now, if you're like me, when I think of rest, I don't think about work. When I think about resting, I don't think about keeping, like you might watch a, a kid swim In in a swimming pool, you you are keeping, making sure, watching carefully, examining. Nothing's going wrong. That's not rest, right? Yet here it says he rested man in the garden, and then he told him to get to work. Well, look at verse 15 again. You read that God rested him in the garden to work the garden and to keep the garden. Now, these two words, work and keep. These two words are very special in the Old Testament. You could almost call them a pair. It's not like, it's not like the and pair of heavens and earth, but these two always go together, and when they go together, they actually mean something particular and something specific. These words, work and keep, are words that will be repeated throughout the Old Testament, except they'll be used differently, and when they're appearing, when we see them together, they're always words that are used in a temple to describe the work of a priest uh, you're thinking, oh baby, here we go. I hope your juices are flowing like mine. There, hold on to those contexts, temples and priests, these Hebrew words are not translated though in those cases as work and keep, but later they are translated as worship and obey. So work, worship, keep and obey. Ooh baby, what it means for Adam to act as an image bearer in this case Check the tapes from last week. It means that you are like a king who wears a crown over all the earth you rule. But then in this passage, Adam is placed in the garden, which you read the Bible and then reread the Bible, and the garden is described actually like a temple where God has placed his special priest here to have communion with God continually where the world's king was rested in a holy temple to keep and work, to worship and obey. And what a divine deliverance this was, a showcase of how great things once were. The king of the world in a holy temple to worship and obey the Lord. And isn't it different than today? Adam is a king. Adam is a priest. He was made different to worship, to work. And as long as he does his job, he'll continue to be at rest. And so will the world. You imagine the garden is a place of no curse, no pain, no frustration, no horrible Thanksgiving dinner, no betrayal, no loneliness, no emptiness, nothing. Nothing. And then we'll see later that things will go terrible in Genesis 3, but keep your heart in the glory of this passage. Adam was allowed to worship God and to hold on to his words, and it was a place of rest. And it was also a place where God's glory was displayed. It wasn't just a divine deliverance, but it was a, this was a special place where God's glory was displayed. If Adam is a kingly figure, if Adam is a priestly figure, if Adam is placed here in a specific place, then it is clear that this place <laughs> is special. And in the Bible later on, it, it is easier to see through other images and examples, but, but the Bible's priests worked in temples. They worked in tabernacles. Kings rule from palaces, and Eden is not like a quaint and quiet Flower bed, but an amazing display of God's glory later, like a temple. Now, the Bible was intended to be read and reread and reread. And I would imagine any of you who have read any great pieces of work, you know, uh, anything by Jane Austen, you know, any of the Chronicles of Narnia, whatever, when you read those things again and again, you start seeing like more glorious patterns in the beginning, almost like the author of that book knew what he was doing. And here we have just an incredible amount of of insight of what was really happening in the garden the more we read the scriptures later on. Now allow me to give you some clues of how you can see Eden as a type of temple where God has placed his special person in a special place. In the the tabernacle later on and later in a a temple, we read about how they were built. And it is pages and pages and chapters and chapters of dimensions and measurements and decorations and on and on. Some of the more difficult chapters to get through in the whole Bible. But one of the distinct features of those temples that we, that we, all, we get all kinds of details about are these flowery descriptions that are along the walls and the ceilings and the floor. Flowery descriptions that are carved into the walls. And also we have these precious stones that are placed throughout the temple. Why why do we need to know all that? Why do we need to know about flowers over here and stones over here and rubies over there? Are they trying to show us that basically the Jewish people at that time were just really great at art decor? Or was our attention supposed to go back to the garden where there were beautiful trees and an abundance of fruit? And there was gold and onyx. And just we would marvel at if that's, if that's what man can do in building these beautiful temple, temples and tabernacles. Just imagine what God did. We're called to recall the vegetation of Eden in Genesis 2. Look at verse 9. Every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And those precious stones, as it turns out, they aren't that random They were to recall the royalty of Genesis 2, verse 12. It says, the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. Now, the point of this is that the intention of the beginning, earth was like a holy temple, displaying God's glory through man's rest. Now, lastly, there's there's the special place has not only an arrival or a deliverance of a man, and it's not only shaped like a holy temple that should capture our affections, but within it, Finally, we'll see God's goodwill, his desire. His will and desire are being declared of how man ought to live. Imagine the center of a plush, lavish garden. What's there? In this case, there are two trees. The first tree is the tree of life, which was exactly what it sounds like. Fruit and immortality. If man just kept eating that, if he could have all that he wanted just from that tree, we have indication that man would live forever. Adam had the breath of life from God. And think of it like this. He was allowed to eat from the tree of life whenever he wanted. God created this guy to live and to have glory in his life. But there's also the wonderfully mysterious tree, the second tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, be honest. You and I do not have an understanding of what this tree fully is. We don't intuitively know what a tree with the knowledge of good and evil is. You think about it, maybe you have a good knowledge of trees. There are over 73,000 species of trees in the world. One of the things that I do that very much annoys everyone I'm around every time I'm on a plane ride is we'll fly over something. And there are trees there everywhere. And the question that I always have is, are there more light bulbs in the world? I'm a fun person to fly with. Or are there more trees in the world? Because of just the, the breadth of everything that's out there. And everyone who says trees, I'm like, what about Hong Kong? There's a lot of lights in Hong Kong. There's not many trees there. But then, of course, you fly over Canada, and it's like, I'm, I don't know. I don't know the question. The point is, is that if you and I spend all of our days trying to understand trees and count trees and know which trees are there, we will never find the tree with knowledge of good and evil. We don't know what it's like fully, but we are given some clues of how we're supposed to understand it. There's no tree like that today, so we should be careful not to speculate about what it, what it fully was, what it looked like. We don't know what it means, but the Bible does give us a couple of clues. First, we understand in verse 17, it was forbidden. He said, You shall not eat. Second, we see that it, it was deadly. Verse 17, If you eat of it, you shall surely die. And third, it was powerful. He'll say, he'll say later in chapter 3, verse 22, that God will say, when man had eaten of this tree, he became like us. Now hear me, get this. This second tree, I need you to know that the second tree, you might have an image of what the seven, second tree looked like. The second tree was not a bad tree. Okay? The second tree wasn't a bad tree. Never described as bad. We have no reason to believe it was bad. It's forgive. It's forbidden. It's deadly, it's powerful, but it was not bad. It's just not yours. The tree that contained knowledge of good and evil was not Adam's. The ideal Eden, think of this, the ideal Eden contained this second tree in its perfection. Very good, it was described, had this tree inside of it. And the way to live in Eden was to live in awe of God's will And his ways to worship and to work him and to follow his command respect these trees But never touch that one why it's not yours Now you may think this is over the top you may think this is controlling of god You may think this is bizarre. Why would he make why would he make everything good? But then have this forbidden deadly powerful tree inside of it. It's it's god's tree It belongs to him. He claimed it and he's kept it from you I wonder if the intention of the tree was to regularly remind Adam that God is God and Adam is not God. Adam couldn't handle life for a second if Adam tried. We we see this played out. If you remember Job's desire, Job, a man who suffered so much, was just he was it was almost like he was angry at God and just wanted God to to give an answer, give an explanation for everything. I want to know how everything is working. And what did God do in that myth? He gave Job just a peek. Just a, just a peak of providence, just a peak of everything and how it's held together, and what did it do to Job? It freaked him out. His knees crumbled, and he said, I will never speak again, and I will repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now, parents today live in a time of seatbelts, baby gates, internet site blockers, and even the ability to call 911 from your watch. Why? because they hate their kids, because they're trying to trick their kids. No, because they love their kids. Some things are just not for us, even if they're made by God. Because it's not yours doesn't mean you are deprived of life. Some things that God has made is just not for us. Anyone other than your spouse, they're not yours. That girl you want to sleep with but have not covenanted with before God, she's not yours. Money in someone else's bank account? Don't lust over that. That's not yours. He doesn't hate you by keeping things maybe for them and not for you. And in this case, that fruit on the tree was not for Adam. That tree that contains the knowledge of evil was not for Adam. Why? Because God loved Adam. You might think of it as Adam couldn't handle what was on that tree. But in God's providence, God wanted that tree to be there. And if God just obeyed, or if Adam just obeyed God's command, what does he have? Everything. Everything. All of life. An all-you-can-eat buffet of joy and flourishment of work and worship. Now, these two trees represent two ways of life for us. I think they were really there. I think Eden was truly a place. I think Adam was absolutely a man. And I think that he had two trees in the garden, and for us, They represent two ways of life. One tree is about life by going all in, pursuing the Lord with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul. And one tree is about trust by shunning evil, by fleeing wretchedness and wickedness. And here the Lord declared that Adam could have life if he trusted him. And that's the point of the entire passage. You can live life under God, submitting to his word, trusting his word, which is trusting him. Or you can trust yourself. Maybe I do need what God told me I don't need. And you can try to make it on your own. And Adam, we will read later, doesn't make it very far. Think of everything that Adam had in the garden. He had everything. But for him, it wasn't enough. Now, friend, I want you to allow this text to turn on you and allow it to, to look like a mirror in your own life. Whose word will you follow is the, is the summoning question of this text. Whose word will you follow, his or anyone else's? These two trees, though, in the garden are no longer. You can search the earth like Christopher Columbus or Nicholas Cage, and you will not find the tree of life, and you will not find the tree with the knowledge of good and evil. No one can find these two things. Treasure hunters have looked, and no one can find Eden. But rest assured that even though these two have been blocking people away from them for centuries, they are not the only tree left in the Bible. There is a third tree in the Scriptures. There is a third tree. In this tree, you might think, okay, life, knowledge of good and evil. I wonder what this third tree is like. The third tree is awful. It's sore to the eyes. It's painful to behold. It lacks color. It lacks leaves. It lacks fruit. And within this tree wouldn't contain the beauty reserved for a temple, but instead it would contain a call for blood and nails. It was a tree. This third tree is a tree of death. But ironically, this third tree would offer what the first tree didn't. It would offer what the second tree couldn't. But it would come at the cost of what the second tree promised, evil and death. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And the Lord Jesus, who is wonderfully known as the true and better Adam, we see Him called in the Scriptures He lived his entire life on earth doing two things. What did he do? He worked and he kept. He worshiped and he obeyed. The true and better Adam glorified the father's commands by working and keeping and because of his life. And according to the purpose, desire of his father, he died on that third tree as a substitute for our sins, bearing our wounds, that we might then have his righteousness, that we would live. Friends, do not forget the wonder of the garden, but do not ever flee from the tree that was delivered to you. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to us about your glory. We thank you that your word holds up your majesty in your holiness. And we thank you that your word tells us and encourages us of how we are to look even though we are east of Eden how we are to live even though we are west of heaven. And in the midst of this, God, we pray that you would turn our affections to you, that you would be our great God, that you would be the one who we are dead set on, knowing and obeying and finding rest. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, amen.